laughed at me about my Christmas ritual and there was nothing wrong with it. It's the same as everyone else's. What's that? Well, you go to the Christmas tree farm, you choose a tree. Yes. You name it. Yeah. <laughs> you sing to it. You decorate it. What do you sing to it? Oh, Christmas tree. And you put in the, the name that you've given it. Do you want to know the name for this year's yes. tree? Bernard. <laughs> Is it Bernard or Bernard? Bernard, he's French. <laughs> In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair and I'm here with Amy Donaldson. Hi. Good evening. How are you? Good. I'm enjoying the heat. Are <sighs> you enjoying the heat? No, no. I can understand why all sorts of terrible things increase in the heat. I walked out and... You went out of I the went, house. Yep. What and, sort of a weirdo are you? And I was just like, I love it. So, if, like you're, if, you're, not, if you're listening overseas or not in Melbourne... It was extremely hot day today, 36, 37? 38 it got to. 38. Yeah. So, and I just love it. And I hate it if it's over 24. <laughs> and you really keep it to yourself. Anyway. So <laughs> I really t- do. T- <laughs> Tish drinks weather report. Tonight, given it is Christmas season, we are going to do a pod on the psychology of Christmas. We sort of thought it would be kind of interesting to have a look at what goes on. Yep. What is written about Christmas? I certainly I found clinically that Christmas time is a really interesting time in the hospital mm. because there's a lot of people who want to see their shrink right before Christmas. Yeah. And then January is deathly quiet. Yeah. So and that's quite interesting. And then also, you know, you get forced to be on leave, so you have to like kind of wrap up. It's all kind of a little bit crazy. Yeah. Like it's really intense. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of stuff. What's your experience working? Yeah, yeah, same thing. And especially working in schools because then it's a bigger break. Yeah, right. So you kind of know that it's going to be, you know, six weeks or something until you can see people again. And so, yeah, there's usually a fair bit of hectic stuff and things that come up and plans of how to cope with family and things like that over Christmas. Yeah, there's a lot of prevention planning (laughs) that that your supervisors kind of start to get into you about. With drug and alcohol work, so my first job, my mm. supervisor was like, you've got to like prepare everyone. And it was quite interesting to think about like a lot of people, particularly if they're isolated individuals, yep. feel incredibly isolated at Christmas time. So, mm. One of the articles I didn't pick was about that and about people from different cultural groups and how isolated they feel during this period being reminded of not being part of the in-group. Yeah, right. The whole season, I thought it was a bit too. I totally have made that faux pas of something. Oh, we do because it's like, oh, I'm I'm Muslim. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Feel like an idiot. <laughs> yep. Um, <clears throat> what are you doing for the break? <laughs> it's easy to do somewhere where Christmas kind of decorations and stuff like that are everywhere for so long as well. Like you kind of yeah, like for six weeks. Actually, no, they start selling them in mid September in Australia decorations. Yeah. yeah. So it's a long time of exposure. <laughs> because like it's, imagine in a school they wind down the school yeah. year. Whereas like in the hospital, like it's just crazy busy. Mm. 
and the wards all have these like competitions yeah. of like who can decorate the yeah. most. <laughs> and so like you'd be walking along past the pathology lab and there'd be this Christmas tree that's made out of inflated rubber gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And, and yeah, just yeah. like amazing kind of like, is this a fire risk? Yeah. Like, no, schools, it's, it's generally a lot of craft activities and stuff like that. But then there's often like an increase in behavioral issues and and things for the kids who really like routine yeah because all the routine is out of the window yeah yeah. and in australia it's hot and so you end up with kids who are hot and agitated and just want predictable (laughs) stable and they're not getting that they're you know making ornaments and christmas cards and playing games and stuff like that and yeah it's not great for everyone it's interesting Yeah, and on the Christmas decorations thing, like if you work in a workplace yeah. and you've got a photograph of um, interesting Christmas ornaments that have been put up, just tweet yeah. at us. At, Absolutely. At, at Two Shrinks Pod. Yeah. It's our Twitter handle. <laughs> All the opposite. I used to work in a place that we put up sort of, I don't know if you call them passive aggressive, they're more aggressive post-it notes about no Christmas decorations. If you've got like notes that have been left around your office about banning christmas decorations i quite enjoy those as well all oh, right because usually people respond the war on christmas yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so you want to lead in yeah off? if you are listening to this with small ears not just like biologically small but children and you're wanting to protect them of the magic of christmas Maybe pause and listen to this later. (laughs) So the first article is called Children's Understanding of Physical Possibility Constrains Their Belief in Santa Claus by Stulman and you in Cognitive Development in 2015. Do you believe in Santa? No, I don't believe in Santa. Do you? Did you? Yes. Do you remember when you stopped? Somewhere between like grade four or or to grade six, I think. Yeah. So sort of late... Like primary school? Yeah, yep. I think that was it. Yep, you're perfectly matching my research. That's great. Yeah. Actually, you're, you were a little late, but, but you're about right. <laughs> I was suspicious and then like one Christmas I waited and my mum came in and put the stocking on the end of my bed. Yeah. And I was like, that I came like, that's definitive proof now. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember finding out and then pretending that I believed for Christmases after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I went into my mum's room for something and saw a present under the bed that then was given to me from Santa on Christmas Day. So <laughs> so the idea of this article was that uh, they're talking about how a lot of what we learn comes from other people. So, you know, a lot of our knowledge about the world and things like that is given to us by people who have direct experience or who have researched it or have been taught it or whatever. And so that kids right from sort of, you know, toddler age upwards tend to prefer people who are telling them information who are knowledgeable, familiar, consistent and moral. Yep. Yeah. So they kind of, they like things to be pretty stable. And that previous research has looked at the qualities of the informants rather than the content of the information conveyed. Mm-hmm. So, you talk about how Santa violates a range of physical principles. So, you know, he visits all children in the world in one night, he flies on a wooden sleigh, he enters houses through narrow chimneys, all of these things we like know. an air conditioning vent. Yeah, all these things we know physics-wise can't happen. 
Yep. But despite this, children believe in Santa more than any other fantasy character mm. and they typically believe until about age eight or nine. And so they're kind of questioning why is it that they trust the testimony of other people telling them that Santa's real, even when they've developed enough cognitive ability to be able to go, well, that can't really happen. Yeah. And so they talk about how whether maybe it's because everybody's giving them the same information. So all the adults are going, well, of course Santa's real. And mm. so it's kind of like, well, if everyone else believes it, then I guess I've kind of got to listen to it. But it's they, also a pretty awesome thing to believe in. Absolutely, yeah. Like it's it's, it's uh, fun as opposed to like, you know, sort of a religion, yeah, which is kind of scary and guilt-ridden. Yeah, it is. It's you know, someone who gives you presents. Yeah, yeah. Like they know what you want and you get it. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> does it, when does that ever there, happen? There was, it was, I think it might have been in quite in a Tom Clancy book or something where yeah. they, the character said, "Well, life." Life is pretty much downhill after you discover Santa Claus isn't real. <laughs> I like that, yeah. <laughs> Think about it. It's not, it's not untrue. No, no, it's really anyway, not. Continue. Um, so, but that, that, that idea of like, you know, you believe because everyone's telling you doesn't explain why children then start to question it and why they start to disbelieve, disbelieve it. Yeah. So, you know, previous research, there's been a lot of it about how children kind of negotiate the Santa issue yeah. and that often people report that they discover the truth on their own. So like your story of, you know, seeing your mum or mine of seeing the present, that sort of thing, rather yeah. than someone saying to them, Santa's not real yeah. and then believing that. Like often the doubt kind of stuff starts with that of other kids or yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. But yeah. So they're questioning whether cognitive development is what plays a part in it. So that kids gradually you know, start to distinguish between what's possible and impossible and improbable but could happen. Yeah. And so they try and, try and sort of negotiate the world and figure that stuff out and then they gradually sort of realise that, hang on a minute, there are more kind of question marks over Santa than otherwise. Yeah. So they did a two-part study. The first one was a preliminary study, which I really enjoyed the methodology of, which was that they – apparently there's a publicly available archive of Santa's emails – <laughs> and so they downloaded 392 of them from children aged four to nine and then extracted all of the emails that contained an information-seeking question. So something like, you know, how do you fly? Okay. Where do you live? That sort of thing. And then they grouped it into whether it was factual or conceptual. So stuff like, what are the names of your reindeers? Where do you live? Factual. Yeah. How do you fly? Um, how do you get around in one night, that sort of thing, conceptual. And they found that 30 questions out of 45 were factual and 15 conceptual and that older children requested more conceptual explanations than younger kids. Okay. So they kind of went, there's something, there's something to this. Let's expand it out. So they uh, got 47 children aged between 3.8 and 9.8 years from daycares and elementary schools in the U.S., and all of the kids said that they, well, all of the kids' parents said that they believed in Santa. Their procedure, they didn't want to ask the kids whether they believed in Santa. No, because you couldn't do that, no. No, it would then make them go, hang on, what do you mean? So instead they asked them, first of all, who is Santa and where does Santa live? And so three children didn't know who Santa was, so... They only completed one part of the task and then were excluded from the data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they got no presents. <laughs> yeah. 
And then everybody else progressed to the next stage. Yep. So the first part of the task was that the experimenter told the kids that they were wanting to write a letter to Santa and they needed help thinking of questions to ask. And so because it was the middle of the year, he wasn't ready to receive requests for toys or any presents, but he would be happy to answer questions. Mm -hmm. And so they needed to think of what they would like to know. So interestingly, 19 out of 47 children were unable or unwilling to generate any information-seeking questions. All they did was talk about the toys and things that they wanted. And couldn't be redirected so I multiple times. Prize. That's all I'm going to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. continue. Here. Yeah. So no matter how many times the researcher tried to go, yeah, well, you know, what else could we ask him? No, they weren't willing Would to ask like those to questions. Know how they talk- yeah, anyway, yeah. 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 So the remaining children were encouraged to think of five questions, and then they were grouped as factual or conceptual, like with the first bit. They were then asked questions about Santa. So they were asked about whether they believed that he engaged in a range of different activities and if they did, how he did them. So it was all the common kind of stuff around Santa. So the flying, making everybody's toys in one toy factory, entering the house through chimneys. Any questions about Mrs. Claus? No questions about Mrs. Claus. Mm. About whether Howie knew that they were naughty or nice and then the kids had to, if they believed in those things, had to then explain how those things happened. (laughs) So friend of of a friend of mine loves Christmas because if his kids were being naughty, he'd yep. pick up the phones. I'm, I'm calling the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of lots of parents <laughs> doing that. And that it can last for quite a while in the lead up. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Probably December's probably the, the, main, the, prime, the main time. Prime time. <laughs> Just instant discipline. <laughs> and then the last part was that they were asked to assess the possibility of unusual events unrelated to Santa occurring. Right. So they're presented with 10 different things, five that violated physical laws, five that were unusual but didn't. Mm-hmm. And then to, they were asked whether they'd ever seen someone do the thing in real life. And if not, could they do it? And if they couldn't, why couldn't they do it? So trying to kind of tapping into that cognitive understanding about causal yeah, yeah, explanations, yeah. that sort of thing. So results. They found that children's judgment of improbable events, so things that were unusual but could happen were correlated with age so younger children just outright said no can't happen so there were things like an alligator being under your bed things that you know probably wouldn't happen but theoretically there could be younger kids not black and white either could happen couldn't happen older children tended to say yeah it's possible and to come up with some kind of explanation for how that could happen And then children who said that the improbable events could occur were then able to uh, identify the actual physical principles that would get in the way of impossible events. Right. Yeah. So they had kind of an understanding that the things that were impossible were impossible because of these reasons. Yeah. So there were things like walking through walls or stuff like that, but then the kids could go, well, no, that can't happen. Yeah. This thing could happen, but that that thing can't. So they could just have a better ability to distinguish between possible, improbable, impossible. Yep. Yeah. They calculated a possibility judgment score, yep. which was the number of impossible events that the kids judged as possible, yep. subtracted from the number of improbable events that they judged were possible. Yep. And then, so a higher score indicates they were better able to differentiate between possible 
mm-hmm. improbable, impossible. Okay. Yeah. So a higher score would mean what exactly? A higher score means that they more were able to... More No, that they, their cognitive development is better. Okay. Yeah. So a lower score means that they're... That they're more black and white in their thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So questions for Santa. 28 children gen- generated 133 questions. Uh, 59% were factual and 41% were conceptual. Mm-hmm. The number of conceptual questions generated was related to their possibility judgment score. So the better their cognitive development was, the more they asked those conceptual kind of and questions. Can, and just remind me, the conceptual... It's stuff like, why do you live in the North Pole? How do you fly around? Yeah, versus like, well, the name's your reindeer, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So stuff, most of the questions started with how or why. Yeah. Those kind of... Rather than a what. Rather than a, yeah, okay. what. Yeah. So conceptual was related to To your better cognitive ability to differentiate between what's possible well, or not. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 So a better cognitive development so you become more, more interested in the concepts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you try and understand why things are happening rather than just accepting the black and white. Yep. Yes, it's happening. Yeah. Um, in terms of the questions about Santa, a huge amount of the kids endorsed that he did those activities so 83 to 96% of the kids agreed with each one of the activities so you know flying delivering presents to everyone overnight all those kind of things yeah 40% came up with causal explanations of how he did those things that had some kind of logic to them obviously not correct but (laughs) you know came up with things like he can fit down the chimney because he takes his jacket off Mm. and drops the presents down first yeah you know stuff like that that's got a bit of understanding of the world yeah 25 percent just stated the activity back to the researcher like he can fly because he can fly yeah it's like duh (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then 14 percent said it was magic 10% 10% provided other irrelevant information that was unrelated to the question and 11% said they just didn't know. So the most questioned activity really surprised me, which was how he makes all the toys in one factory. Mm. I mean, when I was a kid, I can remember questioning how he got through the electric heater. Yeah, right. Because my house didn't have... It had a chimney from where the old fireplace was, but then an electric heater had been installed. I and think, I thought he'd get stuck. See, I think I was much more curious about the decision-making process. Oh, the naughty nice kind of... Oh. All the... No, because it was a couple of years like I really wanted something and I didn't get it. Oh, so when he kind of like gave you a present, but... Yeah. It wasn't. And then I was always fascinated. So like my parents always knew <laughs> which par- which presents were which presents were for my brothers and which presents were for me. Oh. Like I found that... I just was like, that's so amazing. And there were no labels. Or... There was no labels. It was so, it was, it was so interesting. <laughs> so like, yeah, how did they figure that out? Yeah, I just didn't know. Yeah, anyway. Telepathy. I always also wondered how my parents worked out that Santa no longer wanted milk and wanted beer. Mm. Like so that I've, was, just, I've just trained my kids. That's interesting, that yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was... Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> and then the least questioned activity was flying with reindeers. That was just... Like, of yeah, course he does. I think the other thing I, I had was like, how does he get around? Yeah. Because I think I travelled when I was yep. eight. And so I had a concept of time zones. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you're kind of like, okay, well, how does he get around Yeah. in the time that he's got? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Um, and <laughs> the- <laughs> Disclose of our childhood's on teaching spot. Yeah. And then the number of 
causal explanations they were able to come up with was correlated with their age and with that possibility judgment score, so with their cognitive development. And then when they controlled for age, that still stayed significant. So, so essentially high, it so was... So you were better able to explain stuff the older you were and the more developed you were. Yeah, but then when they left controlled for age so that it didn't worry about that, then it still stayed the same about your cognitive development and ability to distinguish between about how many causal explanations you could come up with. So there you go. So there is how children understand Santa and why their beliefs might shift a bit. That's it. Yeah. So I... I, uh I'm going to go with probably just a bit more of a straightforward paper. Yeah. I was very, I was very interested to see whether there were studies that actually kind of confirmed this, I guess, anecdotal clinical experience around, oh, you know, Christmas is a difficult time for people yeah. and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I was actually surprised at how few articles mm. I came across. It's interesting. And it's not for, it's counterintuitive for some things. So like in suicide and self-harm research it's the it's about the weather rather than the event yeah right so in european countries and in the northern hemisphere there's lower rates of those things around christmas and new year Mm. but in australia it's higher so it's correlated with the hot temperature rather than with the event but you would assume that people would feel isolated or those kind of things and and if you're listening overseas like in a northern hemisphere country like just because it's hot in Australia, like it, it can be really, really hot in Australia yeah. on, on Christmas Day, like mid thirties yeah. uh, Celsius, we will still cook <laughs> a hot turkey, yeah, and a hot ham, yeah, uh, and a hot pudding. I have a new, and we'll colleague. have and we'll have like snowy, snowy decorations as yeah. well, and we have like fir Christmas trees, like they're not, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's it's really it's, it's really interesting how we've like imported. Yeah. It all. So anyway, so I, I, I wanted to suss out this kind of thing because a couple of my supervisors said, oh, you know, well, you know blah, 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 it's difficult for your clients yeah. at Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I didn't find a lot. So the, the, but this, this, I did come across this one. Christmas and Subjective Wellbeing, a research note by Michael Moots uh, from Germany in mm-hmm. the Applied Research and Quality in Life Journal in 2016. So it's a German-based study. The focus of this paper is whether Christmas can collectively affect subjective well-being in European countries. Okay, yeah. So, subjective well-being is kind of like a a measure of how well you're going. It includes, uh, includes a positive negative affect and yeah. life satisfaction. So, three yeah. distinct So, it's sort things. of, yeah, how well you think you're going. Yeah, yeah. So, versus, as opposed yeah. to like depression yeah. or anxiety or something, it's a bit, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a nuance there. So, background. Stats from hospitals suggest that deaths per day increase by 22% in the week before Christmas. 22%. Yeah. At least one study indicates high levels of loneliness on Christmas. Mm-hmm. Suicide attempts and self-harm suggest that such behaviours are comparably low during Christmas holidays, yeah. but peak in the days immediately following Christmas. Mm. So it sounds like there might be like a like what you were saying, which is like lower overall trend yeah. in a northern And hemisphere. then a sort of precipitating but, event or something. But, but there might be like a, a mini, mini spike or something. So possible factors. Yeah. Cold weather in the northern hemisphere, overindulgence, mm-hmm. increased emotional stress, family conflict, alcohol misuse. I put backwards, just use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lack of exercise and financial concerns. Uh, so I thought it was interesting they talk about 
Christmas is included as a stress and health-related life event on this scale called the Social Readjustment Rating Scale, Mm -hmm. which posits Christmas as comparable to minor violations of the law or a change in sleeping habits. Yep. It's disruptive. Yeah, disruptive. Mm. They say that despite this popular notion, a few few studies have actually looked at Christmas and quality of life ratings. Mm -hmm. So I'm always interested in this idea of quality of life as a research concept. It always seems a little fuzzy yeah. in my book because quality of life in a like probably in this kind of population level mm. versus say quality of life in say a cancer yeah. thing it's like quality of life against things like are you vomiting yeah. yes no yeah. <laughs> like yeah. are you able to get out of bed today yeah yeah, yeah. versus like other stuff mm. quality of life anyway so it's very varied it's a broad con- concept it's a very yeah. broad concept anyway so, one study found that socializing with family as well as religious experiences are associated with increased subjective well-being, mm-hmm. but consumption activities are associated with higher stress and reduced subjective well-being. Another study found that subjective well-being is higher three weeks after Christmas than the, the week prior to Christmas. Mm-hmm. And that participating in ritualized family celebrations at Christmas increases subjective well-being but having, like, not surprising, conflict is associated with negative affect, a lot yeah. of life satisfaction, a lot of social well-being. So not too out of the ordinary. Studies have been small, some methodological issues, yada, yada. So this also develops two theories of Christmas prevalent in the culture of affluent Western societies. Mm-hmm. They talk about, number one, Christmas is a time of religious ritual and time of charity. So, studies have shown that religious experience, as measured by things like attendance at religious services or religiosity, is, has apparently been found to be associated with better mental health mm-hmm. and greater subjective well-being. And also, like, highest social support, sense of belonging, and atoning for one's sins. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Um, but also that spending money, so there's, there's a charity element, like so spending money on others promotes happiness, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So they think, that, you know, so these, are, these things could influence one theory. Sort of a protective kind yeah. of, yeah. Versus the other, which is the consumption, commerce and materialism. Christmas is the climax of consumer materialism in contrast to its Christian roots. Mm-hmm. So they had some great stats. So average European spends 265 euros on presents mm-hmm. and 160 euros on food, which yep. I thought was really low. And then the next sentence was Americans have spent an average of $780 on presents. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then they have this great quote, organized commercialism has become sacred and the religious experiences of Christmas has lost a good deal of its sacred character. (laughs) They say apparently, well, I'm saying apparently, they say materialism is bad. Mm -hmm. Like in that if you score higher on materialism and spend more money on possessions, you report lower satisfaction with life. Mm -hmm. So they talk about like a mean correlation of 0.19. Okay. So, but obviously kind of reliably found. Yeah. I'm not sure that they measured their satisfaction with the stuff that they have. (laughs) (laughs) This is coming from someone who's had some very successful shopping trips lately. Oh, so successful. (laughs) Um, We should have done a final article. Like, do you think, just like as a complete aside, are you a good gift buyer? Because like, I think I can totally nail it sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's some people that I consistently have no idea what to buy for. Yeah. But I put a fair amount of time and thought into it. Yeah. I mean, probably the people who I have no idea to buy for, I often don't put the time in. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm kind of like, probably like 
90 percent of the time i'm like this is gonna be awesome yeah and then like 10 percent of the time it's just like oh my god i don't know what to get anyway complete aside are people's responses consistent with your perception uh <laughs> more often than not yeah so yeah anyway yeah uh, long section on various theories as to why materialism is bad, neglecting basic psychological needs, this thing of like always wanting more and so yeah. dissatisfaction becomes commonplace or you're comparing yourself with others who have more, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So they also point out pre-Christmas there's time pressure, social demands and you know studies show that if you spend a lot of money in the period before Christmas, you are more stressed, yeah. which kind of makes sense. Like yeah. financial stress really, it's not too complicated. So yeah. two competing hypotheses. And then they also sort of suggested that Christmas associated with higher social subjective well-being or lower subjective well-being. Mm-hmm. And they also suggested that maybe it's going to be moderated or influenced by religious affiliation. Yep. So the study, so it's part of this thing called the European Social Surveys. And they measured quality of life during the Christmas period in 2006-7 and 2012-13. Mm-hmm. And they selected data from countries that have Catholic or Protestant Christianity as a yep. sort of a dominant, a, a dominant historical feature of their society so they had 11 countries belgium estonia germany hungary ireland netherlands portugal slovakia spain sweden and the uk Mm -hmm. it sounded like they had interviews of collecting subjective well-being across the year yeah and then what they did is they partialed them out so they they looked at interviews conducted in the christmas period Mm -hmm. split them into pre and post this is like 16th to the 26th and then 27th to the 31st Mm -hmm. Right, so that's the Christmas period, pre and post, and then they compared it to the rest of the year, essentially. And it feels far more defined in Europe than what it does here, that Christmas period. Oh, I don't really? know if you've ever spent Christmas. No. Yeah. It's far more the same with if you are in a Catholic country in around Easter. It's the same kind of thing where there's not that big lead up of, you know, lots of decorations and lots of things for sale, like Christmassy things for sale or Easter things for sale in the months beforehand like we have here. Mm. Whereas instead it's quite a defined, you know, few week period around that event. Yeah. Which I thought made it feel far more special because you weren't kind of worn out by it and sick of it by that point. Like it kind of felt like this is an event that we're celebrating rather yeah, than... because often the week before Christmas just feels like you're treading water. So yeah, <laughs> let's absolutely. Just get, let's just get to You've it. You've heard the same Christmas carols yeah, so many times. You just, it. yeah. So they had a measure of life satisfaction and emotional well, well-being. Mm-hmm. So results, they found that those surveyed shortly before and after Christmas holidays reported lower life satisfaction and lower emotional well-being mm-hmm. compared to respondents who have interviewed outside of the Christmas period. Yeah. This is in line with that stress mm-hmm. perspective on Christmas. So, and that sort of thing, you know, time pressure, social obligations, financial concerns, all reduce subjective well-being. Yeah. They suggested that probably actually it's the pre-Christmas period that that hustle mm-hmm. is more detrimental. Yeah. And they sort of seem to think that post-Christmas the subjective well-being is not particularly positive but it sort of seems to be regressing to the main. Average. So it's sort of a recovery period rather than... Yeah, a, yeah. yeah. So and, and does improve. Yeah. And another study sort of found like the pre-Christmas, post-Christmas, like it improved yeah. over time. So that's sort of what they're thinking that maybe it's like the prior to. Mm-hmm. What was interesting is they found that Christian a religious affiliation moderated the way that Christmas was experienced. Mm-hmm. So they found, so there's a great graph when they showed that Christians did not suffer from reduced life satisfaction in the time before Christmas. Yeah. 
and the Christmas decline in terms of emotional well-being was less pronounced in the Christians compared to mm. non-Christians. So this is the kind of idea that Christianity is this protective factor against the subjective well-being decline in Christmas. Yeah. So I think that sort of one of the findings to say should be you need to find religion in December. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so like in the first two weeks. So that by yeah. the time you hit that... Then you're fine. Yeah. And then do you need to go to church the rest of the year? I don't know. No. I mean, I'm assuming that's what a lot of people do. <laughs> Sorry if you believe this. I'm just saying... I'm just, Tongue in cheek. Anyway, <laughs> the um, they and they, they did talk about sort of uh, they weren't sure if it was to do with Christian religious affiliation, high religiousness. There's some interesting sort of discussion around that. I wonder if it's that kind of sense of inclusion in a community rather than yeah, I mean, the religion is, in and of itself. You know, this is saying like, well, like is it is it about the way that Christmas is celebrated and that the focus is not so much on consumerism, mm. and then that's why it's. It's, and then you can imagine that that's true, right? Like, so, like, if, if for you it's really about the meaning of Christmas from that religious perspective and you yeah. take a lot of meaning and stock and that kind of stuff in it versus kind of like just like, oh, I've got to buy this stuff and I've got to see the family that yeah. I get along with and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah I mean, that makes, makes sense. sense. So, yeah. So, it was, it was sort of mm. – it was kind of like one of those papers like, oh, well, that sort of shows what I thought it would show. Oh, that's good. So. Interesting. It's kind of comforting, though. It is kind of comforting. Yeah. yeah. Common sense wins. <laughs> <laughs> Take us through your one. All right. So, this one's a really quick one. It's one that I wasn't particularly looking for, but kind of was sort of a things we came across, except it's Christmas-themed Good. in a way. Yeah. So, I'm not sure how universal Christmas crackers or bonbons are. <laughs> Like I think I'm I'm pretty sure they're a British originally British, I believe. Oh really? Yeah, and I think that it's mainly the UK and here that does Christmas crackers. Like I know other parts of Europe Don't do it. Don't do it. Yep. I don't think the US do Christmas crackers. If you're listening in the States, please let us know. Let us know. And if you don't know what a Christmas cracker is before I launch into this, is that essentially it's sort of like a cardboard tube with yep. twisted ends that workers kind of handles yeah it looks like a big like it looks like a big paper bonbon or like lolly yes or or candy yeah yeah with twisted kind of ends and two people pull it and it makes a loud crack it has like a little sort of thing that little paper kind of gunpowdery kind of thing and then on the inside is a paper crown and a bad joke usually and and some kind of and some kind of toy that you throw out. You throw out. But it's it's <laughs> like a fake spider or, or a dice or something. Yeah, yeah. Or some companies try and do sort of practical things. Have so you ever, like, have you ever made your own crackers? Yeah. Yeah, we did one year. Yeah. Well, my mum made them one year, and like she filled them with stuff. And yeah. so, like when we did that, like it like kind of like cracked all the plates or something. <laughs> and <this> stuff, like, <laughs> stuff came out yeah it's either that or the things don't crack and so people end up pulling on them for ages and nothing happens and you end up having to tear them open i know i always commit to wearing the 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 paper crown my only problem is that my hair is quite slippery Mm. and so usually as i'm eating it slowly migrates off the top of my head it doesn't last long uh, i've got like a a rather large cranium, <laughs> I've been told, so <laughs> circumference-wise. So. so it's a bit of an issue. Yeah, <laughs> it was it ripping. <laughs> <laughs> but you're wearing your crown. Anyway, I that, yeah. the article I found is called The Surprising Benefit of Passive-Aggressive Behaviour at Christmas Parties, <laughs> Being Crowned King of the Crackers. <laughs> yeah. 
by Huang Clifford and Lacau in MGA in 2014. So pretty tradition to pull crackers at Christmas, but they questioned what results in winning the most often. So the person who ends up with the largest portion of the cracker when it breaks is the person who wins the contents. Yep. It's a standard rule. So they gave a really detailed explanation of crackers. They had photos. It was amazing. I absolutely (laughs) loved it. There was, you know, photos of what it looks like from the end and like inside the tube and great um they talk about (laughs) we'll put up a link yeah they talked about how there was little research on the best strategy but that one group of researchers had calculated a formula for the optimal angle to hold the cracker while pulling it yeah yeah so they wanted to compare three strategies and test out rates of success so the first is the kinetic strategy so you hold the end with two hands you tilt it down and you use a steady force but there's no twisting Yep. Yep. There's a passive aggressive strategy. So, like, so basically, there's like two people pulling at the same time, yeah, yeah, like yeah. a tug of war, but with a cardboard yep. tube. Yeah. Yeah. Passive aggressive strategy is it's a firm two-handed grip, no angle, no pulling. So you're just hanging on, and the other person does all the work. Yep. Yep. And then there's the control strategy, which is the standard Christmas party strategy where both people pull at no particular angle but it's kind of roughly parallel to the floor. Yeah. Like you kind of just pointed at the other person. See, and see the, the problem I have with all that stuff is so there's like winning and then there's actually making the cracker go crack because there's like a little stick inside yeah. that's got the crack bit. Yeah. And so sometimes you can win, but it doesn't crack. And I yeah. hate, like, I'm, I'm all about the crack. Rather yeah. Than the, rather than the winning. Yeah. Well, this is only about the winning. You can do your own yeah. study on the cracking. <laughs> <laughs> so they... Designed a binomial trial with random pairings to account for individual impaired effects. Uh. <laughs> they did a they did a power analysis. Oh, it was amazing. I yep, ten points for study design. Yep. So results. Yes. So the kinetic strategy, so the one with the sort of tilting down steady force, yep. was not significantly different from chance. Yep. The control strategy, as you'd expect, closest to random. Some people won, some people didn't. Yep. The winning strategy by far, with 11 out of 12 pulls of the cracker winning, was the passive-aggressive strategy. So just holding. So just holding it. Two-handed, holding it. The other person does all other the work. person does all the work. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. So I thought that I'd like to read you a quote from the end Good. of it that I really, I really enjoyed. Um. <laughs> So they said, finally, while the winning strategy does have a high success rate, this is true only if one member of the pair is aware of that fact. If both individuals employ the same strategy, the party could stretch on forever, resulting in a burnt dinner and both hosts and guests in tears. (laughs) The moral of this is a caution against overindulgence in passive aggressiveness. While judicious use may win you prizes, overdo it and your goose will be cooked. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Fabulous. Yeah. So if you want to win. So I always feel there's an etiquette, particularly with children involved, like that everyone's going to get a, like everyone, yeah. everyone has to win. Yeah. And everyone gets, I don't know about your family, but mine, even if people don't win, they at least get a hat. Oh, yeah. No, you have to, everyone has to have a everyone hat. Everyone has to have a hat. Everyone has to put the hat on at least, like initially. Yeah. Yeah. It stays on. They also included a list of the best of the worst Christmas cracker jokes, which are universally poor, which apparently... 
there's been some research done on that as well, which I learned on another, <laughs> it was on QI, about how that there's sort of a theory that listening to bad jokes actually brings people closer together, whereas if they're good jokes, yes. there's kind of some people who don't like them. or yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. everyone can kind of hear bad jokes and yeah. groan together and it's the thing of Christmas. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like it's like a team. Yeah, 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 yeah. Universally hating the contents of the cracker. Oh, God. There you go. Shall we take a break? Let's take a break and we will be back with things we came across. You're on Two Strings Pod. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Two Shrinks Pod. We're sitting here chatting about Christmas traditions that have no basis in research whatsoever and drinking champagne. That's it. My Christmas tradition is to buy six bottles of Vauclicot. I quite like that. <laughs> it's it's yeah. surprising how good an investment it is. How long do they last? To Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> when do you buy them? Let's just move on. <laughs> Mine, if we're talking about sort of alcohol-related traditions <laughs> at Christmas, mine is that on Christmas night, I make a gingerbread house while drinking gin. And depending on how much gin I have, depends on how much icing is on the gingerbread house to keep it upright. <laughs> so, um, thanks for listening. And You can follow us on Twitter. Yep. You could email us. Yep. You could... Leave sky writing messages of how wonderful we are I over Melbourne. <laughs> maintain focus. Oh, I can't. I, I feel very aware that we are recording a podcast. Amy, Amy was meaning to say that you please rate us and write a review. That helps I, other people find us yes. on iTunes, Apple Store, or whatever it is. And if yeah. you are enjoying the show, please let other people know about it. We do try and... We're just getting used to Twitter, so we're just trying to tweet things out occasionally. Yeah. But please try and follow us. And, and send us emails of anything interesting you come across mm-hmm. that you'd like us to talk about. We uh, currently don't know what we're going to do for the next pod, so no. let us know. Well, that's a problem for later. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get to things we came across? Sounds good. So we're back, still drinking champagne. Yes. Let's, let's cheese that again. Yeah, okay. <laughs> mm. Excellent investment. So uh, I have been waiting for the BMJ Christmas edition to come out. So the British Medi- Medical Journal does a Christmas edition every year. And so it's all sort of humorous and fun articles. So this one really spoke to me as a parent of two young children and someone who works in the health sector. Mm-hmm. So, is by Catherine Bell. She's a general practitioner in Sheffield in the UK. Mm-hmm. And the article is called, Does Peppa Pig Encourage Inappropriate Use of Primary Care Resources? <laughs> okay. So, as a general practitioner, I have often wondered why <laughs> some patients immediately attempt to consult their GP about minor ailments of short duration. As a mother, mother of a toddler and frequent witness to the children's television series, Peppa Pig, I might have discovered the answer. Oh, it's Daddy Pig's fault. Actually, it's Dr. Brown Bear is the Ah. issue. So, Dr. Brown Bear, a single-handed GP with whom the pig family is registered, appears to provide his patients with excellent service. Prompt direct telephone access, extended hours, yada, yada. 
But could this depiction of general practice be contributing to an unrealistic <laughs> expectations of primary care? <laughs> so the um, Catherine Bell presents three case studies mm. to discuss this. So case study mm-hmm. one, not very well. A three-year-old piglet develops a facial rash. The parents call Dr. Brown Bear, who operates a Dr. First telephone triage system, mm. who advises putting the patient to bed and opts to make an urgent home visit. He examines the patient's tongue, diagnoses a rash, reassures that the patient is nothing serious, and offers a dose of medicine, despite admitting this purely in response to the patient's request and says that the rash is likely to clear up regardless. Right. So the author suggests that, you know, in the case of this probable viral rash, he reasonably could have encouraged self-management. Yeah. So he's sort of over-servicing. Yeah. Or asked the family to attend the surgery for assessment. His decision not to suggest a potential financial incentive <laughs> for conducting <laughs> arguably clinically inappropriate visit. Yeah. And it's also an example of unnecessary prescribing for a viral illness and encourages patients to attempt to access their GP inappropriately. Depending on the interpretation of medicine, he's either prescribing antibiotics in the era of rising antibiotic resistance or is issuing a non-prescription medication such as paracetamol that is available over the counter. Either way, tut-tut. Yes, it's creating a potential drain of resources on the on the British NHS is what they're suggesting. Uh, case study two, yep. George catches a cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the parents call the doctor regarding an 18-month-old piglet with a two-minute history of <laughs> symptoms playing outside without his rain hat. Sorry, I... There's triage. It, it was the piglet word that got me. <laughs> There's an urgent home visit. They yeah. examine the throat, diagnoses a upper respiratory tract infection or ERTI, as mm-hmm. I've discovered is it's colloquially named on the... Uh, are you bi- supposed to say bi- U-R-T-I or ERTI? Well, I don't know. Uh, ERTI I, I like because it kind of uh, sounds like ERTI. Med regs say ERTI. It's generally, I think that's what happens. Right. So, And the doctor advises bed rest and warm milk. Symptoms resolve in 12 hours. Warm milk? Has he got phlegm? Yeah, well, I don't know. So, I mean... That's really not advised. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> they, they point out that Dr. Brown Bear is conducting triage outside normal working hours. Mm-hmm. Again, opts to make a clinically inappropriate urgent home visit. Had he explored Daddy Pig's ideas, concerns and expectations, he would have discovered that Daddy Pig already had a good understanding of the likely diagnosis and <laughs> self-limiting nature of the illness. Right. And But they do sort of give him points for the management that was clinically appropriate on this yep. occasion. Okay. Case study three, mm-hmm. Pedro's cough. Yep. A three-year-old pony coughs three times <laughs> while attending playgroup. Yeah. A nursery teacher calls the doctor. Again, triage, urgent visit to playgroup in a green-like car with sirens. Sirens? Yeah. It take, he, does take, he does take a focused history. Mm-hmm. Is it a tickly cough or a chesty cough? Mm. And inquires about the duration of symptoms. He doesn't commit to allow to a diagnosis, but does administer a dose of medicine immediately and warns that the cough is potentially transmissible. The rest of the playgroup attendees and their parents become symptomatic and they're all given a dose of an unspecified pink medicine. So it's plague. Mm. Dr. Bear also becomes symptomatic. Yeah, definitely plague. Patients attend the surgery to administer his dose of medicine and and to sing to him. Hang on. The patients give him the medicine? Yeah. What's going on there? So they sort of suggest that by case three, Dr. Brown Bear is uh, displaying signs of burnout. (laughs) (laughs) His disregard for confidentiality, parental consent, record keeping, and his (laughs) self-prescribing indicator that the burden of demand... Technically, he's not because the... the (laughs) The parents are giving him the medication. But it's because he's burnt out. <laughs> it's like, he's can't, it's like, 
This is the, the burning demand from his from his patient population is affecting his health. <laughs> he hasn't prescribed it to himself though. Well, no. Well, he's taking know. medication that's off prescription. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that, they talk about it. <laughs> so also concludes saying, despite the many positive public health messages, including healthy eating, exercise, weight safety, but this author says, you know, however, from repeated and mostly involuntary review of the subject material, <laughs> she's <laughs> hypothesized that exposure to Peppa Pig and its portrayal of general practice raises inappropriate patient expectations tut, and tut. use of primary care services. So This um, is why the NHS is so underfunded and overworked yes, because and of Peppa Pig. And Pe- <laughs> That's right. But Dr. Dr. Brown Bear was approached for his perspective on the cases. <laughs> But he was unable to comment depending on the outcome of a fitness to practice investigation. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Done. Finn. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what have you got for us? So, the psychopathology of James Bond and its implications for the revision of the DSM 007. <laughs> <laughs> By Roots and colleagues in MGA in 2015. So... They talk about how that they're really pitching for a lighter, easy, easier to use DSM than previous versions. So, so it's a diagnostic statistical manual that's a big book of psychiatric disorders. Yeah. And the most recent one is the fifth. And so they highlight that, you know, given the sixth is probably already being talked about by various committees, which is how everything's being decided, mm-hmm. that it's probably best if they're going to have a radical overhaul to aim for the seventh, mm-hmm. you know. Give give the profession time to adjust. Yep. Yeah. That's good. Yep. So, James Bond was selected by the authors as a suitable subject because of his widespread acceptance among both men and women as an aspirational role model. He's documented problems with both alcohol and violence and the large amount of observational data that was accessible without exceeding their research budget of New Zealand dollars... Uh, hang on, of 80 New Zealand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> So, similarly to yours, which I think is what struck a chord, was that they say that their request for a diagnostic interview with Commander Bond and for key informant interviews with his colleagues, MQ and Miss Moneypenny, were turned down. And we assume by MI, MI6 on the grounds that these people were allegedly not known at that address. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they were, however, able to gain access to the 50th edition box set of James Bond video observations, which provided about 23 hours worth of video mm-hmm. Con- mm-hmm. content. So quite good. Yeah. So basically what they're proposing is that people would either be classified as having bad Bond adequacy disorder, mm-hmm. which... BAD, yeah. Yep. They do emphasise that it's important for any diagnosis to have at least three words and to make a nice acronym. Mm, uh, it's definitely preferable. Yep. Or normality disorder, which is everything else. So right. they're essentially suggesting a binary DSM. Mm-hmm. So would you like to do the Bond additive descriptors of antisocial, antisociality scale, mm-hmm. the badass? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. Does your patient, or we could say you, have a sense of entitlement? Yes. Oh, we're going towards bad. bad. See how useful that is? Like, this is like, it's like one question. You're, like, you're already yep. like on the pathway to diagnosis. Yep. Use bad puns and or sexual innuendos. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Damn it. Seek admiration and is very yes. self-centered. 
Fuzzies Act sexually podcast. promiscuously. Uh, no, no, I don't no. think so. Look for a fight, no matter what the cost. Actually, hold on. We need to wind back. Okay. I'll ask that question again. Act sexually promiscuously. No, I said, I said no. Okay, so you would be diagnosed with normality disorder. Right. Yeah. So, but if I said yes? If you said yes, then we continue to look for a fight no matter what the costs. Mm -hmm. If you'd said yes to that, frequently risk the life of themselves and of others. Mm. Uh, If yes, engage in excessive thrill-seeking. If you said yes to that, kill people. Mm. If you said yes to that, then... You're bad. So you have to satisfy all those things to become bad. Yes, you do. So their key behaviours... of Was it thrill-seeking before killing people or after? Before. Okay. Killing people is like the last criteria. Otherwise, you're... I thought there might have been one after. I was like... Normality disorder. So basically, they... Can normality be disorder? Yeah, so that's their argument that you could be in one cluster or the other. You're bad or you're in normality Mm -hmm. disorder. That's it. DSM down to a couple of pages. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the key behaviours that characterise bond adequacy disorder are deceit, sexual contact, risking life of self, risking life of others, attracted to women with unusual names, mm-hmm. entitled behaviour, exploiting others, lack of empathy or emotional detachment, illegal activity, killing both self-defence and murder, fighting, bad puns, and patronising or sexual innuendo. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, seems like sound diagnostic criteria mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they talk about the advantages of this approach. Yes. And so essentially they're, you know, talking about that there would be simpler to diagnose people because you'd be one category or the other. Yep. Less stigma because everyone's given a disorder. Like yes. they've got the bad disorder or the normality yeah, disorder. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, That's it's it. like none of this kind of like, oh, you know, some people have a disorder. Some people don't. It's like, no, everyone's got one. Everyone's got one. It's just about which one. It's much more convenient. Yep. Uh, they also talk about how, you know, parents could be reassured that their children weren't bad mm-hmm. that they had normality disorder or for those who like to imagine that their children had a more severe disorder could kind of fill in the gaps to make it think mm-hmm. that maybe mm-hmm. they were bad mm-hmm. that you wouldn't need as many resources or tailored services no. No, yeah, one or the other yep. new drugs could be developed yep. making the pharmaceutical industry quite happy mm. they also made the point that for the first time in a long time the pharmaceutical industry wouldn't be creating their own drug own disorder to then create a yeah, drug to go with they've yeah. created one for them that's it it's nice it takes the pressure off those poor guys it does and the last point was that it provides a research controversy to please editors <laughs> <laughs> so there you go an argument for bad versus normality disorder <laughs> there you go are you comforted to know that you have normality disorder not I was, bad i was i was i was feeling good about bad for a bit yeah yeah i mean you wouldn't have you killed anyone? Well, like like the, the Diet Coke of bad. <laughs> <laughs> One gallery. Not even enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Edible. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I got where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's it for us. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we may do another pod next week before Christmas. Yeah. We may not. I don't know. Yeah. Are we? I, I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, lurking. Still lurking. But if we don't... Have a Merry Christmas, and mm. but we'll be doing pods on and off uh, through, Jan- through January yeah. over Christmas. Each one will feature me complaining about the heat. Yep. And Hunter saying how great it is. Yep. And or no, or me complaining about the fact that it's bloody raining. In and the me going, woohoo! Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Either or, tune in for your weather forecast. Except, except if it's if if we record a pod during the Australian Open. Yep. Which is in Melbourne. Yeah. That is without fail 
this, the, the, the hottest, hottest, the hottest yep. period of time yep. in Melbourne. So I'll be in a cave in, in that period with an air conditioner. Just to give people an understanding of that, like every year the TV station <laughs> always shows a picture of someone cracking an egg on, the, yep. on centre court. And it frying. And it frying. Yeah. Literally frying. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, you know, welcome to Australia. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, no, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. See ya. so delightful And since we've no place to go Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow It doesn't show signs of stopping And I brought some corn for popping the lights are turned way down